Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, you are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You are the God who appeared in the cloud of glory and consuming fire to your servant Moses. We ask now, Lord, that you would make your manifest glory known to us in the truth of your word and in the presence of your Holy Spirit. It's in the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. There's a number of uh, documentaries about uh, mountain climbers on Netflix, and I've watched some of them, and I'm always Im- impressed with uh, uh, what humans are able to do uh, given uh, technological advancement and the kinds of equipment we have these days. Uh, but in the ancient world, there wasn't a whole lot of mountain climbing going on because they didn't have this kind of equipment that we have today. They didn't have the kind of technology for exploring uh, the landscape of mountains as we do today. And so um, there was really nobody climbing large mountains. And in the ancient Near Eastern world, is a world in which the Bible was written, mountains were considered dwelling places of deities. Okay. It was just a well-known... Uh, uh, a facet of the cosmology of the ancient world that mountaintops, nobody, no humans lived there and it was way up there in the clouds and so that is where uh, the gods lived. And so interestingly enough, uh, the God of Israel, as he often did, worked within the context or the framework of an ancient person's mind and actually often condescended to the worldview of ancient peoples and then tweaked it a little bit to show that he was the one true God. But it goes no different for mountains being considered the dwelling places of deity. And uh, this is why we see so much mountain imagery and encounters with God throughout Scripture at the mountaintop. Uh, Eden, which was God's dwelling place with humanity, is described in Ezekiel 28 as having mountains. Uh, and then, of course, you get to passages uh, like we read today, and it's always on Mount Sinai that God calls Moses up into his manifest presence, into the cloud of his glory. Then if you remember the story of uh, the Tower of Babel, what were those people doing? They were trying to build more or less a mountain-like structure. It was called the ziggurat in the ancient world because they believed if you got high enough, you could get the deity to come down because you were getting up into their uh, neighborhood. And then, of course, Mount Zion was the site of the Jerusalem temple which is why even if you're traveling south in the Bible, it always says going up to Jerusalem because it was talking about the temple and the pilgrimage to the temple. And so God, the God of the Bible, uses mountains as his dwelling place, mountaintops as a place of his glory where he will manifest and give people encounters with himself. I want to read to you From John chapter 12, every time that we see an encounter with God in the scriptures, it is God shining some kind of light into the darkness, making himself known. I just want to kind of read this to you and let you have this in your head before we kind of dive into what uh, today's readings say. Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. 
I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. You see, Jesus came into the world to reveal the very one who sent him. And he says, if you see him, you've seen the one who sent him. That is the glorious God of Mount Sinai. And I believe that some of you probably already making the connections between the passages that you heard read just moments ago. So let's start at Exodus. There are a number of mountaintop experiences where God calls Moses up to the mountaintop to give him some kind of revelation. In Exodus uh, chapter 24 today, God calls Moses up. And he's going to give him his word for his people. He says, come up here. I'm going to give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandments, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses gets his assistant, Joshua, and he goes up and he says to the elders, you need to wait here until we go up. So remind you, there was rules about this mountain and who was allowed to go up it. This was for Moses, okay? God considered Moses a friend. He would speak to him face to face, but for everyone else, this was the holy mountain of God. And so you did not get close to the mountain on penalty of death. Now, why is that? Because God is grumpy? No, because humanity is stained with impurity and to come too close to the glory of God could would mean certain destruction because his presence is so pure and holy and good. And so there were boundaries set. You don't come within this boundary or boom, goodbye, good night. Okay. But this is, this is all to illuminate the great and glorious presence and holiness of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so Moses goes up the mountain And it is described like this. The cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. Now, glory is his, it's his visible splendor. Okay. It's the visible splendor of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people Israel. When the Lord manifests his visible splendor, it it is it's a sight to see. It's a sight to behold. And so this time Moses is going up to receive instruction for the people of Israel, but also on the mountain in Exodus chapter 34, it's a revelation of God's character to Moses. He says that Moses says to God, let your glory pass me by. God reveals himself to Moses, his very nature. And he says this, this is from Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and sin and transgression, but who will by no means clear the guilty, so on and so forth. So again, what's the purpose of coming up into the presence of God to receive revelation from God about who God is and what he desires, right? It's why he gives his instruction for his people. God is a God who desires, the God of the Bible is a God who desires for us to come up into his presence to have a revelation, a deeper knowledge about who he is and what he wants. We see it all throughout scripture. Then in Exodus 19 at the mountaintop is where God makes a covenant 
with Moses. Now, let's fast forward in the Bible up to John chapter or Matthew chapter 17. If you're an astute reader, thinker, you cannot miss. You cannot miss the parallels here. Peter, James, and John seem to have some kind of special place in the Lord's heart. He, they seem to be especially close to Him. He takes them into places where He doesn't take other people. And it's what happens here at the mountain, and today we're, it's the last Sunday of Epiphany, so we celebrate the transfiguration of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus, He takes Peter, James, and John up on the mountaintop with them. You see, any time we have an encounter with the presence of God, it comes from invitation, right? Even if you go to the Lord in prayer and you have a wonderful, sweet time in prayer and you're very sensitive to His presence, it's because you are responding to a prompting or an invitation that was in your heart to do so. So Peter, James, and John, they don't, you know, wake up and say, you know what, I think we're going to go to the... Jesus, come on, we're going up to the mountaintop and you're going to show us your glory. No, this is a gift. Every manifestation of the presence of God is a gift of God. You cannot earn it, but you can posture yourself to be prepared to receive it. Now, more about that in a moment. Matthew tells us that Jesus was transfigured before them and His face shone like the sun. That's pretty bright. And his clothes become white, as if they were bleached, white as light. Glory. Visible splendor. You see the parallels here. Something's being revealed to Peter, James, and John in a very direct and powerful way that not everybody, that no one else got yet. And it is this, it is that the glory of God, the God who dwelt on Mount Sinai with, with Moses, shines fully in the face of Jesus Christ. Radiates through the face of Jesus Christ. And you can see what a, what a, what a powerful experience this was, is because these guys hit the deck in fear. <laughs> It says this, it tells us this a little bit later in the passage. Now, of course, Moses and Elijah appear before him, <clears throat> both prophets, right, who are, we're, we're seeing through the veil here, the thin veil between t- heaven and earth. We're seeing two men who are with the Lord in all of his glory in heaven. <clears throat> Interesting that Moses is there, right? He's like, oh, I've done this before. And we read this. Peter starts, you know, as always, like bumbling something that doesn't make any sense or that's just he's just not getting it and understanding and he's nervous and he's, I'll make some tents for you guys. This is awesome. And it says, he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. The glorious presence of the Lord can be terrifying. 
They hit the deck. They didn't know what to do. They heard the voice of God thundering out. That's unmistakable. Well, what's the revelation that he gives to them? This is my son, my, my beloved son. I'm pleased with him. And then isn't it interesting? He says, listen to him. Listen to him. Remember on Mount Sinai, the giving of instructions came through the tablets written on stone. And now the Lord's desire for how his children are to live is given how? Listen to Jesus. It's a, it's a new and better covenant that we are called into, friends, through the blood of Christ. The law that is given to us is the words of Jesus, the life of Jesus written on our hearts, on our consciences by the Holy Spirit. It's a better covenant than what the Israelites under Moses had. You see, God puts all of His authority, all of His fullness, all of His Word in the person, Jesus. In a, in a person, in a man, God puts all of His authority, His divine power, His glory, His visible splendor in His Word in a man, Jesus of Nazareth. Behold His glory. And they fall on their faces and Jesus says, don't be afraid, rise and have no fear. And they go down from that mountaintop experience. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4, describes Jesus in these terms. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. He is the radiance of the glory of God. You see, friends, Christians, we cannot miss that. We cannot miss Him. We cannot get distracted with things other than Him because He is the radiance of the glory of God. And you and I, thanks be to God, by the precious blood of Jesus, have been invited to experience His presence shining on us, changing us. Peter, James, and John got a special privilege. And you think, oh, how nice that would have been. But guess what? Every Christian, every believer in Jesus now has access to the presence of Almighty God in the face of Jesus Christ. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. They don't make enough bookmarks in some Bibles, enough ribbons. Sometimes I add them. Paul says this, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, the God of all creation, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The same God who spoke, let there be light, is the same God who radiates His glory in and through the person of Jesus. This is 
what separates if I said what separates believers and unbelievers you you know you you might say well, well they they haven't re- repented of their sins or accepted Christ's forgiveness for their sins or they don't they don't believe in God or they don't believe in Jesus and all of those things are true at some level right but here's ultimately what separates a true a Christian from a non-Christian one has beheld the glory of Jesus and one has not one has beheld the glory of Jesus and one has not seen his glory because to become a Christian is not only to receive Jesus as your Savior, it's to receive Him as your treasure. It's to make Him the King of kings and Lord of lords of your life. It's to put Him above everything else in all of life and to savor Him. Just like that farmer who found the pearl of great price on the land and so he sells everything else he has so that he can have one pearl of great price. Jesus is of ultimate value. You see, you can, you can, you know, so many of us, we worry about our Christian lives and what should I be doing? And am I doing enough? And how do, how do I pray? And what do I do about this? And how do I serve? And all of those, those, those things. But here's the, here's the one important thing. And if you get this right, everything else will fall into place. Do you behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? And do you treasure him? Above all, his presence, his sweetness, his love for you, his power, everything that he is. Do you treasure him above all? If we get that right, we'll get everything else right. You, you can't behold Jesus on a daily basis and not be changed. Amen? You can't behold him on a daily basis and not be changed. This is actually what Paul talks about in the chapter uh, previous, in 2 Corinthians 13, he actually contrasts two covenants. He says the covenant under Moses, he says it's an inferior covenant to the covenant that was made by the blood of Christ on the cross. He says this, just listen. Remember uh, the passage where that tells us that Moses came down from the mountain and he'd, he'd give the revelation to the people, but he'd have to put a veil over his face? Moses, after being in the presence of the Lord, it like it like it stuck on him, <laughs> like he took a little bit of it back with him, and he had to wear a veil over his face until the glory would fade, because you know you, you, he couldn't get near anybody. That's because the presence of the Lord was so heavy upon him, the glory of the Lord, and so <clears throat> there was this veil. Now here's how Paul talks about this. He says, "When one turns to the Lord, Jesus." The veil is removed. The veil is removed. And then he says this. We all, speaking to Christians, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into his image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. You see, this is, this is the, this is the gift. This is the benefit. This is the ultimate reward for us as Jesus' people is that we get to gaze on His face without a veil. We get to behold the glory of God. And when you do that, as Paul says, you'll be transformed into His image. So this is the, this is the one fundamental thing really for Christians. 
Okay. When you think about spiritual practices, how should I be living my life? And those are excellent questions. We should be asking them. We should be concerned with what our lives look like. But this is just the one fundamental thing. Beholding Jesus. Beholding Jesus. Do you have a secret place? Do you have a prayer closet? Do you have a room? Do you have a place? Do you have a park that you can go to in solitude? Do you have a regular time of getting with Jesus and beholding him? Because the transformation from one degree of glory, the increasing glory of God on our lives, it won't happen without, apart from beholding Jesus. Okay. So it's a matter of priorities, right? It's, it's putting that first and letting the acts of service, community fellowship, worship, corporate worship, coming to church, all of those other things must flow from that foundation of that. Because when you put yourself in the fullness of his presence, your heart begins to be stirred with deeper love for him, deeper affection for him, which in turn will be a safeguard against empty formalism, right? Empty good deeds that don't really have any heart behind them for the Lord. This is the greatest safeguard against what we might call religiosity, right? Form without any power, worshiping God externally, but having no affections in our hearts stirred for him. It's beholding the face of Jesus in the secret place, having a private practice of worship to behold his glory, to pray his word back to him, to love him, to give him, to, to, to give him just your own simple words. Lord. I love you. You're glorious. You died for me. Jesus, I praise you. Read some of the praises of, of, of the peoples, the saints falling down before him in the book of Revelation in his throne room in heaven and what they're saying to him and read those out to him. It's glorious. He's worthy. And the more how it works practically is that the more you make a practice of beholding his presence in the secret place and pouring out your heart before him, the more amazing he becomes to you the bigger he becomes to you the more real he becomes to you and what happens is that it will keep drawing you back in for more because you get a taste of the sweetness of his presence and his glory you'll want more it all goes back it all centers upon as every, as, as every sermon must, the person of Jesus, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. <clears throat> this is what keeps, this is, this is what makes us different than the Israelites who could get nowhere near the mountain and the glory of God. And, and it makes us different where we can actually enter into the presence of the glory of God ourselves. Why are we different? Because of the cross. There needed to be a sacrifice that could actually remove the stain of impurity that kept mankind from coming into the presence of God. And it became clear that humanity on its own was not going to be able to get itself pure. And so God looked on the world and loved it so much that he sent his son to come to bear all of the judgment for sin and then to hand us a blank slate, a pure record there's no more DUI on your, on your record. There's no more crime on your record. It's been erased by the Son of God so that you could come in to his presence. 
Just think about this for a minute. If you were visiting, you were invited to visit the Queen of England, and on your way there you fell into a puddle of mud, what would immediately be your response? Get me clean. Go get me some new clothes. I need to be wiped up and purified. Where's the shower? Right? Because you have a sense that you're coming into the presence of royalty. Someone who's set apart from others. And by golly, you're going to be clean and dressed to the nines to come in their presence, right? How much more for a holy and perfect God do we need to be made new, cleaned? And the good news is this. We don't have to do it on our own. We don't have to do it on our own because he did it for us. He did it for us. And this is why the Bible constantly says that through the blood of Jesus, we approach his throne with confidence because we have been made clean. We have washed our robes white in the blood of the Lamb. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. He's made us clean to give us access to his presence that we might behold his glory. This is why Mary of Bethany in John's Gospel is such an important figure who's mentioned twice. And both times we see her, all she is doing is at the feet of Jesus beholding his glory, pouring expensive perfume on him, just lavishly and indulgently wasting perfume and pouring it on Jesus' feet. And then in the other scene, just sitting at his feet and just gazing at him and listening to his attention. And Jesus says about her, she's chosen the best thing. She's chosen the best thing. His sacrifice was extremely costly. And what he was after purchasing for himself was the reconciliation of his people to himself, to his presence. And you have to think, if you were a parent, who had a child who was estranged and you they were the one in the wrong and you extended absolute forgiveness and reached out to them with everything that you could so that they'd come home. And they just said, eh, how broken your heart would be, right? Think about how the Lord feels when his own children neglect his presence. We, were, we had our vestry retreat this weekend, and, and it was wonderful. And one of our uh, members reminded me of some words from Richard Foster's book on prayer, and I was so affected by them, I went and looked them uh, up. And I want to share with uh, you today these, these words from the opening of uh, Richard Foster's book on prayer. He says this, Today the heart of God is an open wound of love. He aches over our distance and preoccupation. He mourns that we do not draw near to Him. He grieves that we have forgotten Him. He weeps over our obsession with muchness and manyness. He longs for our presence. And He is inviting you and me to come home. To come home where we belong. To come home to that for which we were created. His arms are stretched out wide to receive us. His heart is enlarged 
to take us in. He longs for it. He longs for it. The only question is, is do we? Do we long for it? Oh, that we might hunger for it. I want to just give a few practical pointers. Um, how do you apply this to life? Of beholding the glory of Jesus. There's so many practical things that we can do. But the first thing really is to cry out for His grace to enable us to do it. God, I... God, I struggle with this. I, I, I don't desire you, right? What about those days when you just don't desire God? Most of us just don't in our own person. We don't won't go to the secret place because we don't desire the secret place. And so it begins really with crying out to him, God, give me the grace to hunger for you because I want to want to hunger for your presence. Start there. Start there. He'll work with you. He will. He's gracious. He's gracious. He's patient. But here's a few practical things to think about uh, getting into his presence and beholding his glory. One is contemplation, and there's a specific kind that I have in mind. It's the contemplation where you have a passage of Scripture in front of you, and you begin to meditate on something very small. Okay, Let's just say that I had 2 Corinthians 3, 18 through me. And I was listening, or I was reading it, and what really grabbed me was beholding the glory of the Lord. And I would say that passage over to myself out loud a few times, beholding the glory of the Lord. I would repeat it, I would repeat it, and then I would lift it up to Him and think about what does this mean and ask Him, Lord, show me what it means to behold your glory. What does it mean to behold? And just stay there for a while. Contemplate. There was a New York Times article uh, written a while ago, and the uh, title of the article was Long Married Couples Do Look Alike, Study Finds. There was a University of Michigan psychologist. This is real. I'm not joking. There's a University of Michigan psychologist reporting who did research on the study. And he said, people often unconsciously mimic the facial expressions of their spouses in a silent empathy and that over the years, sharing the same expressions shapes the face similarly. You will become like what you behold, what you contemplate. What would happen in our lives if we were beholding the face of Jesus? Number two is this. Lent starts Wednesday. So it's a, it, it's a wonderful time of year if you don't have a practice of fasting to start one. Jesus said in Matthew 6, when you fast, <laughs> it's different than if. He says when you fast, right? It was an assumption that his followers would fast. The, the purpose of fasting, though, is not to like try to make yourself miserable and um, be like, yeah, God, look how miserable I am. Aren't you proud of me? <laughs> no, no, no. The purpose of fasting is to have more delight in God, less delight in the things of the flesh and more delight in God. So if you deprive yourself of something that you depend on for pleasure, you will be better able to see and enjoy the glory of Jesus. On, on days of fasting for me, I always am able to just, I'm able to connect to him just easier than, than, than I, 
than I can when I'm not, because I'm not as distracted, right? I got nothing. I'm not thinking about the next, I'm not thinking about lunch the whole time, because I know it's, it's not happening. But when you deprive yourself of, of those pleasures, you make more room to be hungry for Him. And there's all kinds of things. I do suggest, um, you know, the Bible's form of fasting is talking about food fasting, um, usually. And so finding a way to have a day here or there where you fast from food until sundown is a beautiful way to learn to connect to the presence of Jesus. But um, another way, and Lent, you know, giving you this 40-day, gives us this 40-day window in which to think about things that we might be called to give up. Don't just pick random things um, with no purpose. Like, I just want to try to prove that I can go without chocolate for 40 days. Think about what gives you pleasure and what actually has your gaze. What do you behold for pleasure in your life? And what are you giving a lot of time and focus to? And fast from that. And then shift the gaze to Him. We'll be changed. We'll be changed. What happens is day one, day two, day three, that other thing begins to be less and less and less appealing. And He begins to be more and more and more appealing. Number three, and this might be the most overlooked way of beholding Jesus, but behold Jesus in the face of others. Jesus makes it clear in Matthew chapter 25 that he identifies with the poor, the sick, the imprisoned, the least of society, the forgotten about. Was he, he's, he's speaking to uh, those who took care of the uh, hungry and thirsty and those who were in prison. He says, as you did it, To one of the least of these, you did it to me. We can behold the face of Jesus in the face of those who need us, who need what we can give them. Feeding a hungry mouth, listening, giving your undivided attention to a broken soul, letting go of that thing that you're so worried about getting to or that book or that show you're so worried about getting back to. Oh, that one's hard for me. I don't want to put down my books to give my children my attention. That one's hard but putting those things aside and giving ourselves fully to those in need. It's beholding the face of Jesus and it will transform us. Most of us in theory agree about that, right? But the question is, am I really willing to have my day interrupted to give myself to someone else? It's not easy, but it is a way to behold the glory of Jesus Finally, and I feel like I haven't said uh, much about this uh, in, a, in a while, and it's so important, but regular communion. What happens when we come around this altar is a holy thing. We, we, we Episcopalians are so used to doing it every week, and anytime you do something on a regular routine basis, there's always the danger of it becoming an empty formalism. But coming to this table, every Eucharist should be a kind of mountaintop experience with the glory of the Lord. Because it's here where He has chosen to give us the, 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 the palpable and potent, uh, potency of His presence in, in the bread and the wine and invited us to come and be strengthened and to be refreshed and to come into deep intimacy with Him 
as we receive his, his broken body and his precious blood and the elements of communion. Let me just close with this. I want us to close thinking about what is our end? What is our end? What is our chief end? What, are, what is all of life heading towards? It's not something we think about very often, right? Because we get so consumed with the immediate, right? But what is our end for which we need to be formed and prepared? 1 John chapter 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. We shall see him as he is. And then he says immediately after, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself even as he is pure. Where does all that purity begin? By seeing him, beholding him. If we get that one thing, everything else will fall into place. Let's pray. Lamb of God, we know that even now from the visions and revelation that peoples of every tribe, tongue, and nation, angels and archangels, cherubim and seraphim, fall down before you and worship you, saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Lord, and you've invited us up onto your mountaintop to behold your glory, to join our voices with angels and archangels and cry out to you, holy, holy, holy. God, I pray that you would just imprint this truth on our hearts, your desire, that, that open wound of love that you have for your children who are, have become so distracted with the things of this world, Lord, myself included, and call us back where we are invited home to enjoy the goodness of your presence, the glory of your presence, and to behold that glory in the face of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.